listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Hey listeners, before we get to today's interview, I want to tell you about an exciting development. Grief Out Loud recently partnered with BetterHelp. Have you heard of them? They provide online counseling and support with licensed counselors via video, phone call, real-time chat, and messaging. When BetterHelp reached out to us to ask if we wanted to partner, we thought, well, we better try it before we recommend it to you. So a few weeks ago, I signed up and got connected to a local counselor. It's been great. You know how when you try to find a counselor, especially in the before times, it took a lot of work? When you do finally connect with someone, you might have had to trek across town or even to a different town, navigating traffic and scheduling. With BetterHelp, I got connected in just a few days. The scheduling was super easy, and the commute just required me to walk across my house to a different room. If you're needing support and counseling, give BetterHelp a try. You can sign up using our specific Grief Out Loud link. It's betterhelp.com forward slash grief, and you'll get 10% off your first month. So once again, it's betterhelp.com forward slash grief. Okay, here's today's interview. Even if you're someone who conscientiously avoids the news, it's hard to miss the conflagration of what's happening in our world these days. Here are just a few things on the 2020 What is Happening menu. The coronavirus pandemic which hit in the United States back in late February and has, as of today, September 21st, killed almost 200,000 people in our country. It's a pandemic that continues to disproportionately affect communities of color for both adults and children. Because of coronavirus, so much has changed in our daily lives. In-person services for things like mental health, education, grief support, camps, and even something like going to a movie have had to switch to virtual. Families with children continue to scramble to figure out childcare, virtual school, and keeping kids connected to friends and family. Then, throughout these last few months, we've also watched as protests and uprisings against police brutality and the murders of so many people of color have unfolded. The cause of these protests is not new or unique to 2020, but the collective energy going into the protests seems to be more wide-reaching. Recently, communities across the West Coast are facing wild land fires that have forced many to evacuate and others to struggle with hazardous air quality. Other cities like Philadelphia and Chicago are experiencing a steep increase in the number of homicides and the rates of gun violence. Each one of these situations is creating heartbreak, anger, grief, and uncertainty. Alongside the families who are facing these circumstances are those who are working to support them, teachers, therapists, community leaders, and like today's guest, those who work directly in the field of grief support. Kevin Carter currently serves as the clinical director at the Uplift Center for Grieving Children in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. In the course of his three-decade-long career, Kevin has worked as a clinician, administrator, and educator. He's worked in residential treatment for hospice, as a field director for social work education, and now in the world of grief support. 
Recently, he served on the Content Advisory Board for the Speaking Grief Public Media Initiative. In his work, Kevin is focused on grief, loss, and trauma, and how these issues affect children, youth, and families, and particularly the African-American community. Kevin and I talk about how current events, which are also historic, are affecting the families he works with and how he's personally navigating these times. Kevin, thank you so much for making time to be on Grief Out Loud with me today. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Thank you for the opportunity, Dana. Um, and I appreciate the opportunity with everything going on in your city and around the world. This is, um, it's a privilege to get together with you today. I know. I think about that a lot of, you know, Zoom land makes me miss the before times when I sat down in person with people. And it's also opened up so many conversations across the country and across the world that I, I don't think I would have been having before. The, the reach of the ask for who's going right. to be on Grief right. Out Loud has really expanded. So I'm, Absolutely. yeah, it's, I'm excited to talk today. So given the current context, I'm curious, like the work you do, you're, you're present with so many families, so many kids, so many teens in their grief. And how are you carrying this work in the current environment of the pandemic, uprising is against police brutality and, and white supremacy, and, and also the economic crisis that's hitting so many people and particularly communities of color? I think um, what I'm really on a daily basis and sometimes moment by moment is trying to keep um, my mind and spirit focuses on the fact that some of this is new, but a lot of it is old in terms of what I'm used to in terms of living as an African-American in this country and in someone doing this work. One of the ironic things is, is that when I first started in the work, one of my ideas and goals would be for more people and everyone to be talking about grief I never really thought that it would come about <laughs> <laughs> in, in this kind of way. Um, and I think that the challenge is, is really trying to get a hold of the physical, emotional, and spiritual toll that, you know, we hold and recognizing that it makes me vulnerable in terms of my thoughts, my feelings, my behaviors, and my practice. So I like, enjoy the times in which people are gaining deeper insight and they're beginning to understand that um, the things that you mentioned around racism, white supremacy, economic crisis, that these things are important, but it doesn't make it any less painful to have to be a part of it, witness it, and in some ways discuss it. A lot of this is, uh, a lot of the work I think is trying to be careful with the people that we serve in terms of the ways in which we bring up kinds of things, but also the ways in which we monitor how we do this work. So when we walk into a group setting and when we're working with staff, we, we're always talking about these things. But if the client's not ready to do that work, um, we, we respect them and we support them where they are. What I keep coming back to on a daily basis not just in my work at Uplift, but in general, is really trying to help children and caregivers come up with their own narrative about how they see themselves, how they see the world, how they see grief, and really 
work with me and work with us to figure out what that means for them and then figure out what the healing looks like. That um, brings a lot of hope and also it helps out balance out because there's a lot of pain, but then there's a lot of joy too. When you see people learn about themselves, learn about their peers, and then be able to support each other. I'm really struck by that idea of some of this is new, but most of this is old. And there can be this idea like we don't know how to do this because it's all so brand new. But then so much of it, like you said, is is familiar. And maybe it's way more in a lot more people's radars now. But this is a patterning that we know in terms of how to show up and be there for families in grief. And I was just listening this morning to an interview with Pauline Boss, who coined the term ambiguous loss back in the 1970s. And she's been on a lot of podcasts lately. And she was she was talking about one of the most important questions she asked somebody about their grief, about their losses. What does this mean to you? Which opens the door, as you were saying, of like, now we know where to now we know where to enter. Right, right. You know, I'm, I'm reflecting back on conversations that we had with um, some of the teens in group. And, you know, we would bring up the uprisings and um, the protest, but it was fascinating to hear what that meant to them in the context of their own lives, but also in the context of having conversations with adults. So, you know, some of the youth were contemplating, do I protest? And some were saying they didn't want to protest, but we actually had youth who told their caregivers that they wanted to go help clean up the city because they felt like that was their part in trying to solve some of these problems that they wanted to, they wanted to help in that way. You know, we talked to the caregivers about some of the same things and there was you know, there was no consistent agreement on what people saw, but we felt like being open about the realities because literally families can be on the phone and things were happening in the city right outside their window. Or um, what we found for some of our um, families is just the outcome of the uprisings would like close down a grocery store, close down, you know, a pharmacy. So, you know, they may believe in the, the right to protest, but some of those consequences weighed heavy on a lot of our families. And I think one of the bigger concerns too is that, you know, safety is always an issue. And the issue around fighting for safety and justice sometimes contradicts with the actual feeling of safety in a person's home, in their body and in the city. I'm thinking back on some of the conversations that I've been having too with teens in my groups about everything, pandemic, the protests in Portland, there's been protests every night for over a hundred days. And I was thinking about how many more layers have gone into the decision-making process for them. So for them, it's, I want to go to this protest because I believe so strongly in this. And now I have to consider safety around the pandemic and I am the child of a grieving parent who has already had one child die and is terrified about me going out to the protests in a pandemic for the safety. Or I'm part of the LGBTQ community and I'm more at risk from 
being out and if I were to be arrested, what would that mean for me? And so, so many different layers with the pandemic that I think wouldn't necessarily be there. There'd be grief and there'd be safety. And now there's this added aspect that people are having to sort through as well. Yeah, there's there's a level of, you know, and I'm going to speak to this a little bit. There's there's an added level of vulnerability in Philadelphia because, you know, we talked about the coronavirus and then, you know, the uprisings around white supremacy, racism, protest. But there's a, a huge increase in gun violence in the city. So we're, I think we're 30% higher than we were last year. And a lot of families that we are supporting either have had members um, murdered, you know, in the present and in the past. So you're absolutely right. It's like there's a lot of decision-making that goes behind just actually being out. And as school begins to open back up, you know, some jobs and some other things begin to open up. These are things that, you know, the children as well as the caregivers are managing every day. And we really don't take it for granted that it is more complex than it was six months ago or three or four or five months ago. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I with the wildfires that have been happening here in Portland for the last two weeks, and we were facing potential evacuation, and the air quality has been beyond measure hazardous. And I found myself feeling nostalgic for the good old pandemic days where that was the only thing you know, like the only thing in big terms that I was thinking about. And I, I think about that for so many families who they have someone in their life that has an advanced serious illness or somebody has died and like feeling nostalgic for the time when this wasn't part of my reality and part of all the ways that I figure out where I go, when I go, how I go outside or, you know, into the world in that way. We've been talking a lot about the current context. I wanted to go historical for a moment with you and that I think you and I have been in the field about the same amount of time, about two decades. And I was curious for you, when you first got into this work, supporting kids and teens in grief, what surprised you about or struck you about how they respond and how they make sense of what's happening? Yeah, I've been thinking about that question and I was trying to go back and forth between 25 years ago or 30 years ago, I kind of landed on 30 years ago when I was doing residential treatment for adolescents in Virginia. In retrospect, what I learned is that they were telling me about their grief journey in their words and behavior before I even entered this particular part of the work. One facility that I work with, young people would be sent from down in uh, southern and Tidewater, Virginia, up to northern Virginia, deep in the woods, where their their caregivers and their family couldn't couldn't come and or didn't want to come. And a lot of the behaviors we saw were, I think, in part uh, due to the loss and trauma that they had in terms of being removed from their families through foster care, through other kinds of means. But I think one of the more fascinating things that literally pushed me back to graduate school is developing relationships with these young people and then seeing what happens when it was time for them to leave. I think I'd never really understood how um, endings often promote a lot of regression. You know, I would see 
you know, 16, 17 year olds who had, I'd worked with for a year or two go back to the exact same behaviors that they were displaying when they first arrived at the facility. I kind of used that to move me forward to um, getting my graduate degree, social work degree at Howard University. And then it really prepared me for my first job working in hospice in um, Tallahassee, Florida, and really building a grief and loss program for children and their caregivers there. And I think those lessons actually helped me because we would go out in the schools, you know, at the elementary level, middle school level, and high school level, I was able to put myself more in a position of doing more listening and waiting, beginning to learn how not to try to control. <laughs> I think that's one of the, the lessons that I began to learn then is that I am really at some level infringing on a young person's life, perhaps not by their choice, beginning to learn how to respect them as human beings at their own level of development, I think was one of the biggest lessons that I had to learn. That brought a lot of stress because, you know, I love my graduate program and they never really told us to take over people's environments. But I think the natural human inclination is to try to um, try to say something or do something so that the person can do the healing that you want them to do. And I learned early on how much that wasn't going to work. And really what all those young people taught me is what I primarily practice right now, which is I'm always listening and trying to hear what they want and what they need. And coming into the, my interactions with um, children and caregivers with less anxiety, less prescriptions for what things are going to look like, and spending most of my time trying to co-create a relationship that works for them. But also realizing the choices that they make to join us and how complex they are. Because when we were out, you know, we had six facilities that we were doing groups in. When we were out doing the groups then, they had to come to us. So it requires sometimes a bus, um, getting picked up, not going home, having to catch a meal, and then really sitting in front of a group of people and identifying yourself as someone who's had someone to die. I don't, I don't think I appreciated the courage that it took for young people to do that back 20 years ago. But now it's just like apparent that if I'm listening and if I'm supporting, I can help them find a way that they're already working on their healing, but also we can find somewhere in that group and somewhere in that family options to, to help make them feel the way they want to feel, not the way I want them to feel. That's a lesson I feel like all of us in the field are learning constantly, right? Of like, how, yeah, it's not about how I want them to feel. <laughs> and you know, I talk with volunteers a lot at the Dougie Center when, especially for our groups for younger kids, these are kids who are like three or seven, they come together and they talk a, a bit, but they do a lot more 
expression through their play. And sometimes volunteers and myself too can get caught thinking, gosh, you know, are these kids just playing? You know, like, are they actually doing anything? Because they're just here to play. And I remind myself and remind them all the time, like these kids and families are choosing to come to a place where everyone here has had someone die. They could play anywhere, but they're choosing to come here to play together. And that means something. And that's, I I have to reground myself in that reality. I mean, now we're just playing on Zoom, but back in the day when we would come together in person. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that's part of the adaptation too, is that it's interesting because I think they're at home and they still choose to show up. And part of what we're trying to work on is getting comfortable with them showing up in ways that they really want to and need to. So for example, we found a lot of our um, teens uh, this summer, they didn't want to be on camera. And sometimes they didn't want to talk. We were smart enough, but also we had listened enough to know that that made a lot of sense. The emotional and other turmoil young people and families are going through right now, you, you know, we just didn't want to exacerbate it by us insisting that the technology that we brought to them was going to solve all of their problems. That's just, it's just not our approach. So, you know, we're consistently trying to work with them to figure out what they want and what they need. And, you know, one of the great things that happened this summer is for the groups where people attended, the children nor the adults seem to miss much of anything except for being with each other physically, you know, that, that energy, particularly for adults seemed to be a big loss, but for our teenagers, um, they didn't articulate much about that at all. I I love that. There's the flexibility to say, show up however you can show up. If that means just calling in on your phone and we just, maybe we just know you're there because we see the little box with your phone number, but you don't say anything the whole time or you show up and you have your camera off or your camera goes on and off or you show up for half the group. I'm really appreciating that about this time in a weird way of that kids can show up in a way that before they, it may have felt really exposing to come into the building, to be sitting, to be so seen. And now we're kind of in their houses too. And so to give them that, that choice. And I go back to again, like what do kids need in grief? They need choice. And so how can we keep implementing that even in this virtual world? So I asked you about your historic career, (laughs) your 20, 30 years in the field. And and I'm wondering too about the history of grief. So both like individually and collectively for the communities that you serve, like how do you see historic grief showing up in the present day for the kids and teens that you work with? Um, That's that's another great question. Um, I think one of my biggest concerns in that area is I think there's a lot of collective grief and collective trauma that has gone unrecognized and unprocessed. You know, the whole notion of um, suffocated grief and disenfranchised grief, it, 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 it um, has always concerned me. But I think what has happened is much of what has been suppressed feels like it's coming to the surface on top of that, the, the limits that COVID has put around us. One of my huge concerns is, is the overdrive and the overwhelming 
pain and grief that people are suffering with. Because one, you know, I think I alluded to this at the beginning, you know, it's great that now more people understand at least the source of people's pain and grief, but if it keeps getting played out in front of us, you know, through the media and through other conversations, it's hard to figure out when to turn on things and when to turn them off. And that's not just literally media, but, you know, I'm always worried about what's too much. And I've always been concerned about that. But, you know, young people can't avoid what's hap- what happened with George Floyd and on and on and on and on. That That's my biggest concern. And I think one of the things that I think we see in the city and around the country is because of the way have been people have been have been treated around their humanity and around their grief, I fear that people's expectations will lower about how they need to be treated. And therefore, when they lower expectations about how they need to be treated, then that may have an overflow in terms of how they see each other and how they see their family. You know, I alluded to, you know, the homicide rate in the city and, you know, and and I didn't check the news today, but again, we're 33% higher than last year. At some point, we're wondering when are they going to declare a state of emergency? Because, you know, I think think it's pretty clear that if there were um, 300 white people murdered in the city of Philadelphia, something else would have been happening. My concern is, is how do people stay physically, emotionally, um, spiritually safe, but how do they fight as well as heal? That's part of what's always been driving my work, but it's driving my work more now. When we start to see, you know, higher death rates, less longevity for people's grandparents, their parents and their brothers and sisters, you know, what is the cumulative effect of that in terms of people's dreams and aspirations and who they want to be and how they want to do it. I haven't read the research lately. I, I think Dr. Bordere has done some work on this just around, you know, teenagers planning their funerals because of what they've seen around them, not as in like what they perceived, but, you know, their actual realities. So I think that's the urgency that I think we've always had in the work, but it's much more urgent now in terms of trying to support people and figuring out what works for me in terms of how I hold myself in a society that's basically gonna say, you're only gonna be so, but so free. You can express your feelings at the level in which we're comfortable. And you know, that's not just um, the largest society, but you know, that can be within a person's home too. If I want to cry, is it okay to cry? And who's making those rules about who cries and who doesn't? And, you know, if I want to express myself through writing a hip-hop poem, can that be heard? Can that be heard by my peers? Can that be heard by my teacher? Can that be heard 
by, um, you know, the people in my church or, or so it's like, I think it just keeps driving me to figure out how can a person express their voice? How can they um, do things to be safe in their body? How can we as practitioners, practitioners as, and as adults expand our ability to help hold all of that? As you were talking, I was thinking about there's like just the sheer amount of loss, right? That the kids that you're working with are encountering, which is like unfathomable, the amount of loss and, and early on. And then also here's this invitation maybe to express your grief, but do it in a way that fits in this small box that I have created that I will allow for your grief to be in. And it sounded like what you were saying is like, how do we like kind of blast that box open, make way more space for kids to express what's coming up with these losses. And also how do we like, as you said, can you hear it? Can, how do we hear it? How do we acknowledge it? How do we celebrate that expression? And then how do we make an invitation for more? So it's not just, okay, you did this little thing and that's great, but we don't want to hear any more from you. I, I agree with all that. And, you know, even at a, when you take it to another level, it's like we've been beginning to talk about what history looks like. So once we begin to deconstruct history, what does that mean for what we've already taught people? So for example, I always, one of the things that I sit around and wonder about is what would happen, um, particularly if we taught um, African-American children, but all children, that the beginning of civilization was in Africa and your, your life did not begin in enslavement. It actually preceded all of that in ways in which you have never known. And I wonder how much of a loss that would be to not know. Because I know I begin to, to study these things and under, understand these things more when I was in my latter part of my 20s. There was a, there was a notion that I had missed something and have been cheated out of something that was actually part of my birthright to know. Um, and you know, there are a lot of reasons for us not knowing what our whole history is. Under all of those kinds of things we talked about, I think about that and how perhaps that could be healing, you know, in concert with what we may do in education in this country. But that's gonna be hard. Um, I mean, I don't, we don't have children, but I know that when children challenge adults about their truths, the adult has to be prepared for that intellectually, but also emotionally to be able to say, you know what, you're right. You know, African-American people did have a presence other than being the enslaved Africans of George Washington in Philadelphia. You know, there was a whole whole um, group of free blacks um, who we never hear about, who fought for certain kinds of things. So not knowing, I think, is a part of the grief process that I hope we begin to learn and teach and teach and learn so that all children can see the complexity of the country, 
and of the city in ways that would be, you know, probably painful, but helpful too. And speaking of education, Uplift, the center you work for, you do a lot of work in the schools. And I know I get a lot of calls from teachers and school counselors and administrators of like, what do we do? How do we help these kids in the educational environment? I was wondering if you had a few ideas or suggestions for what we can be doing in educational settings to support kids who are carrying grief into the school, whether it's virtually this year or in person. Yeah. Um, you know, you, if you would have asked me that question 10 years ago, I would have the same answer. <laughs> and it's really starting with the education of the administrators, teachers, and personnel in the school, education ar- around grief and loss and trauma with them. Because one of the things that I think we have a, a grasp on at um, Uplift is that the teachers and the administrators are in that same environment in many ways that the kids are struggling through in terms of their grief and loss. So that grief doesn't stop at home. It comes into the school setting, it comes in, 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 in terms of behavior, comes in terms of emotions and, you know, how people hold their bodies and, and how they interact with other people. So I think what we've done um, and, and I can, talk a little bit about the approach to the pandemic is there was an increased focus on getting information to the school through our, you know, we actually put up a COVID pivot on our website. We put up um, information about how um, children are dealing with the pandemic, how it's grief related, how it's trauma related, you know, the, the head of school and community you know, stayed in contact with the school despite all of the changes going on. And one of the things that um, ended up is there was a collaboration to develop um, something called Hope Line. And Hope Line is where children and families all around the city can call and get support around grief, loss, and trauma and other mental health challenges that they may be having. Um, that was instituted this summer. It will go until the end of the year. You know, we were taking the approach of we're going to work with school administrators, teachers, but also because they won't have as much access to them. Let's put up something along with the school to let people know that they can call someone. You know, through that process, we're having increased referrals in family services, which is the program that I'm primarily responsible for, but also we're beginning to engage not only children, but caregivers who serve them. So it's kind of becoming more of a wraparound um, kind of approach. Right now, both of our programs, family services and school and community are planning on doing virtual groups until December and and in family service, we're gonna continue the whole year. And, and part of the reason is, is that we want to try to mimic what we used to be in, be in person, which is when you're looking for us, we're always there at five o'clock. We're always there 20 minutes early. We can't be there 20 minutes late because we have to get <laughs> off and go. We have to get off and go to see other people. 
But what we're trying to do is we're trying to bring that consistency back so that if they decide to be with us, they can be with us. And they know that we will be there from October 5th until the end of May. We can't do exactly what we did pre-COVID, but we can let people know that when they're ready, we're going to be there for them and do that in a way that is um, challenging for us because we have to change the times we do things. We have to change the manner in which we do things, but that's really out of respect for um, the children and families who are responsible for us having a program. You know, no children, no caregivers, no grieving people, no program. So we're trying to honor and respect them in, in those kinds of ways. Hopefully that got to, um, <laughs> I know I said a lot, but hopefully that got there, got us there. I think it definitely got us there and it and made me think too, you know, we mentioned how choice is so important for grieving kids and teens. And I think about consistency, routine, predictability. And it sounds like those are the three things that your program is really focused on this coming year of, even though it's virtual, we're here at the same time, same week, and it's going to be that way for, you know, nine to 12 months. Uh, so people can really rely on it. Right. This is a little bit of a side note question for you, but you were really involved in the speaking grief public media initiative that launched this summer and includes a one-hour documentary uh, featuring different families who have experienced grief. And there's a bunch of stuff on their website and small video clips and social media campaigns. And I was just wondering for you personally, what was it like to be part of that project? It's actually been one of the highlights of this year and last year for me because being able to collaborate with, um, you know, WPSU and Lindsay and the team was actually one of the one of the things that I had thought about in my career that I really wanted to do because I've always wanted to get the message out, but I also also wanted to get the message out that this is for all of us, and I think our ability to put something together that allowed, you know, the universality to come out, but also the particular to come out. And I know, you know, we didn't cover all of the kinds of deaths that are important to people, but I think based on the way that they did that project and they're continuing to work that project, I think there are going to be thousands and thousands and thousands of people who can access that information. Um, the other part is I've been able to utilize it, you know, in my networks in ways that a conversation might not get it. Because um, even with my friends, I'm like, watch it, sit your family down. If you have questions for me, you can call me, ask me. But this is really about introducing something that is universal to us it was just very exciting to be amongst um, a group of people who had that goal and to work with so many different people in different kinds of ways. You know, it, it, it was never grueling. It wasn't easy because, you know, you're being asked to give your opinion and clarity on, you know, how things should work on the website and, you know, what kinds of families 
should be included. But like I said, it's one of the most enjoyable things that I've done probably in, in, in the last couple years of my career because it, it meets one of those goals is, which says, you know, the world needs to know. And the fact that we have this media that the world actually can view this, I think is instructive. And, you know, and, and I'm sure that the project leaders are going to learn from it and figure out, and hopefully we can figure out what to do next. So one more personal question for you, and that is, you know, we started the interview talking about like, how are you carrying this work? And, and one of the things you mentioned were, were some pieces that were giving you some hope. But I'm just wondering for you, like really personally, in everything that's happening in your context, what's helping you right now? Um, that's a pretty long list. I'll, 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 I'll try to list them <laughs> first. <laughs> um, um, my wife has always been supportive of the work that I do. You know, she she stands aside and says, you know, do what you do, and I and I have your back. Um, that's that's the primary. I have a set of uh, fraternity brothers who I um, communicate with by text and by weekly call, and they can help me get away from some of that. I have my brothers and my mother who. I have always been behind me in terms of what it is that I do. Sometimes it's hard to explain to my mother what I do, but she's <laughs> like, you're working and you're doing good. So, so keep it moving. I, I would say one of the things that I do miss, but it still helps me is when I used to drive into the city to go to work, you know, sometimes, you know, seven o'clock in the morning, I see a little black child with the book bag hustling off to school skipping down the street as if, you know, there's nothing else going on in the world except for them getting to school and doing what they need to do. Um, my team still motivates me. They're some of the most smartest and committed people that I know in terms of this work. Um, I do therapy periodically. I'm actually on a weekly book group and it's a uh, Resma, I always mess up his last name. Resma Menachem, he wrote a book called Grandma's Hands. And it's about dealing with black, white, and police bodies and trauma. Um, so we do that. I continue to read a lot, um, even though it's turned into grazing. Um, <laughs> instead of, instead of, I have like 30 books I'm still reading. Um, trying to think of what else. Um, meditation. I, I, I don't practice as consistently as I um, want to. And actually, I think the last thing is um, I actually did a garden um, for the first time in like 30 years because I'm home and I could attend to it. Those are some of the things, but I've, I've had to really be very intentional about drawing on things to help balance the joy and the pain because it's very painful to support people in ways that I think most of society would rather not do. It, it seems like you are modeling so well for the families that you work with as, as you were talking, I'm like, Oh, you're hitting all the points that we would be sharing with folks that are like, how do I support myself in my grief? It's like you rely on your supportive relationships. 
you do something physical, you do something creative, you do something to engage your, your mind, you do something to practice some mindfulness or some self-awareness in that way. And so, yeah, it seems like your list is right out of the guidebook for how to support yourself when you're grieving. Yeah, well, my colleagues probably would say, <laughs> I'm glad he's doing all of that. <laughs> And my family too. So, <laughs> right. I think about that often. I'm like, self care is for me, but it's also for the people who have to deal with me. So, right. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, Kevin, I so appreciate you taking time. I know it's like the end of the day at the end of the week where you are on the East Coast. So, just thank you for carving out this time to talk with me today and with our listeners. Thank you for the opportunity. This is, I think, the second time. We've um, been able to interact and this has been um, well worth it. And a lot of people told me that uh, this would be a great process and it's proven to be such that. Oh, well, I appreciate that. And this time, listeners, is much less stressful for me. Last time Kevin and I were sort of in the Zoom land together, we were doing a Facebook Live for the Speaking Grief uh, documentary debut. <sighs> And I don't know about you, but I was very sweaty during that. So I feel much calmer yeah. talking just one-on-one -on -one with no live audience. <laughs> yeah, that was that was a little bit of pressure. Um, you know, the the video work had already been done, but, you know, trying to rise to the level of that video in terms of what we presented was, um, it was a bit of a challenge. But I think we did well. <laughs> Well, I so appreciate your time again. And listeners out there, I'm going to put a little bit of information about the Uplift Center in our show notes so you can learn more about Kevin's work there and his, his whole staff's work. And also a link again to the Speaking Grief Public Media Initiative. So Kevin, thank you again for being part of the show today. Thank you very much. And listeners out there, I say this each and every time, thank you so much for tuning in for making grief out loud. Do what it's meant to do, which is to reach people around the world to open up this conversation about grief. If you'd like to reach out to me to let me know what the show means to you, you can reach me at griefoutloud at Dougie, D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. If you want to learn more about the Dougie Center, get involved with our work or support us in some way, just go to D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G forward slash griefoutloud. Thanks so much for listening and we hope you'll join us again next time.